That's a great question. Uh, it comes from a, uh, a very simple poll that we did about six months ago or so. Thank you so much, Danielle. Um, yeah, about six months ago or so, we did, this, uh, we did this poll. We put a bunch of questions out there to you guys, and then we asked you guys to kind of vote on which ones would be like your top four, top five, that kind of thing. And uh, 10 a.m. service, we went through a few of these uh, in the last couple months, and so now here at the 5 p.m. service, we're going to start um, digging through some of these. Honestly, what um, Sam and Matt were just talking about before with the Carry app is a brilliant uh, start slash segue to what I'm going to be talking about tonight. Uh, which is, uh, yeah, one of the top four questions that you guys had, which is around um, the Old Testament and the Old Testament law. Is it still relevant to us? So I'll park that question there just for a moment um, because I've got a different scenario that I want to uh, run for you guys. And um, track with me as this is something that I've definitely experienced in my life, and I'll be curious to see if it's something that you've experienced in yours. So um, let's say, for example, you've just downloaded the Carry app or the Bible app, or you've got a physical Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be like a physical Bible on the seat in front of you or something like that. If you don't have one, pick it up, take it home, it's yours. Um, but Chances are, if you've spent any time around the Bible, or say you've had one sitting on the shelf, you think to yourself, I really should get into the Bible, and, and I really should try and understand it and figure it out. So you spend a little bit of time thinking to yourself, what am I going to do about this? How am I going to do this? So usually, the new year rolls around, and you decide that I'm going to set a habit for myself. I'm going to put an alarm on my phone, and every day at this time, I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to start... Uh, cover to cover. I'm going to start in, let's see, what's this first book called? Uh, right, Genesis. I'm going to start in Genesis, and I'm going to go all the way to, what's the last one called? Uh, Revelation. Very good. And then if you're anything like me, because I've tried this multiple times in my life, if you're anything like me, Genesis starts out pretty hopeful. You're like, this is, this is good. This is some good stuff. We've got God creating the whole world. We've got the first humans. They make a big mistake. That's unfortunate. We've got, uh, we've got some people doing some bad stuff. We've got the Tower of Babel. Oh, Abram. Okay, wow. God is reaching out to a human being for the first time. We've got a covenant promise. I like promises. God's got good promises for me. We've got, uh, we've got Abraham. He becomes Abraham. Okay, okay. We've got, wow, Sodom and Gomorrah. That's awkward. Uh, we've got uh, Abraham's faith is tested, and I feel like there's, uh, feel like they're foreshadowing something there. We get through Genesis, we get through the story of Joseph, we get through the story of Moses, and then around about Exodus chapter 19 or so, things have been pretty good. It's been like watching this big long movie about what God is up to in the world. You get to Exodus chapter 19, and uh, suddenly things kind of slow right down to the point where instead of just kind of skipping over hundreds of years of history, we're at the foot of Mount Sinai with the people of Israel and God is speaking directly to them, speaking directly to Moses, saying, I'm going to be your God, you are going to be my people and here's what it looks like. And then what follows just kind of, I don't know, if you're anything like me, it kind of just pours a big jug of cold water on your enthusiasm to read the Bible, the story of God's work amongst humanity, because what follows is like a lot of, a lot of rules, like a lot of laws, a lot of uh, restrictions, a lot of, um, a lot of ceremony, a lot of stuff intertwined 
with the story. And I mean, gosh, by the time we get to, uh, by the, time we get to the book after Exodus, Leviticus, it's like, there's like a lot of blood, there's like burnt offerings, there's, there's sin offerings, there are, there are um, worship offerings, there's all of these sacrifices, there are all of these ceremonies, there are all of these um, dietary things, health things, bodily discharges come up and you're like, oh, I'm really done now. And then you decide, I'm just going to go back to where it's comfortable. Um, and if you're familiar with the Bible at all, then you're like, well, if I get somewhere past the middle, it'll start talking about Jesus. And Jesus, I like that guy. Like, he's got some good stuff to say. Okay. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. That's been my journey several times. And it wasn't until I figured something out, or rather am starting to figure something out, that I can see what God is doing even in this Old Testament law that seems so disconnected and ancient and tribal and just weird to us. So, uh, the reason that I tell you that is because oftentimes our attitude to the way that we, uh, that we approach this book, the Bible, our attitude to that is, can very much uh, restrict or it can very much uh, affect the way that we see God, the way that we see ourselves, and what our role is to play in this world. The way that we see Scripture really does affect the way that we see ourselves and the way we see God. And I guess my hope for you tonight is that we'd be able to uh, kind of shift our perspective a little bit with regard to Scripture away from this idea of uh, how can I apply what's in the Bible? How can I apply that to my life? What if we shifted that to how can I apply my life to the bigger story that God's telling here? Because I think what can happen and especially when we deal with this question specifically, how does the Old Testament law, like, is the Old Testament law still relevant? What can be easy for us to do as human beings is to take something like the Old Testament, go, this doesn't really seem very applicable to my life, so I'll just kind of ignore it. And we can actually miss out on so much of what God has already done in the world. And by missing out on that, we miss out on the significance of what He's doing right now. And we fail to see our full role to play that we have uh, in this story. So, as we start out, basically what I'm going to try and do is uh, I'm going to try and break this question down uh, to like three sort of key questions that follow on from that. Um, after I've talked about those, we'll talk at the end about sort of the different laws and how they might apply to us. But I'm going to need some help, so I'm going to pray and then uh, we'll, we'll crack into these three key questions and we'll see what we can learn along the way. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask that uh, your presence would be uh, felt among us here tonight and that whatever stage of life that we're in, uh, no matter what our background, no matter where we've come from, that we would be able to see uh, you at work in us through the story of Scripture and in the world around us. I pray that you would challenge us. I pray that you would encourage us and I pray that you will uh, work through whatever words I say um, to be able to work out your purposes in the, in the lives of every individual here. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, so, three key questions that I've got around this Old Testament law still being relevant. First of all, what is the law? I feel like we just need to get some basic ground rules around what the law is. Um, I'm going to refer to the law by uh, this word, Torah. Torah basically just means, uh, well, we literally like to translate Torah, a, a Hebrew Jewish word, 
into law. That's like a literal translation, it's, it kind of works. But also, it sort of uh, simplifies it a bit too much. Torah means uh, the first five books of the Bible, essentially. That's how the Jews see it. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But the Torah includes 613 laws, give or take, as well as a bunch of narrative, like good story details, right? So you've got rules, like 613 of them, including the Ten Commandments, which probably most people have heard at least at some point in their life, and a bunch of story elements all working together. That's the Torah. But more importantly, for the Jews, the Torah is literally, for them, it's the Word. It's the Word of God. It is seen as a gift from God. Torah, law, gift, story, that's kind of what I'm wanting to encapsulate when I say Torah. So, as I refer to it as we go on here, try to keep that in mind a little bit. Um, okay, so, the, uh, what I want to come back to is that idea of our perspective on Scripture can change the way that we see ourselves in God, etc. What I want to put to you tonight as we dive into what the law is, and whether or not it applies to us, is that the perspective we want to hold with Scripture is that it is a story. It's God's story of Him at work in the people here on this earth, throughout history. If we come at it with a story approach, the role that these 613 rules, the role that they play starts to make a lot more sense, and I'll unpack what I mean by that in, uh, in just a little bit. So, if the story perspective is the one that we're going to need to make sense of this, then I guess the next question that we need to answer is, what story does the law tell? Or what story does the Torah tell? Okay, right back at the start, Genesis. If you were starting your January New Year's resolutions with, I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover, you would start with the account of creation and how God brings about everything that the world needs for flourishing. He brings everything together and says that it's good. He gives humankind the perfect environment for flourishing and he says that it's good. There is this concept that is so key to understanding the big, big story of what's going on in the Bible and it's this word, shalom. Shalom is like a very, very key, important, reoccurring theme that keeps coming up throughout Scripture. So, I'm just going to try and break it down as quickly as I can. We often like to think to sh as shalom as peace, like literally translated as peace, and, uh, and it's also a kind of cool greeting that, um, that a lot of, uh, well, Jewish countries still use when they greet each other, shalom. So, you can turn to the person next to you and say shalom, or not, if you're not feeling particularly peaceful. Uh, but, to be honest though, shalom is actually a little bit more than, uh, than just peace. Again, when we translate Hebrew to English one for one, it doesn't always match up uh, properly. The theme with shalom, the significance of it, is that it's, it means peace, yes, but it means peace because there is completeness, um, because there is a wholeness, there is prosperity, there's health, there is uh, unity, there is completeness. 
right? That is the concept of what shalom is. So when the story of Scripture starts, you've got shalom, you've got wholeness, you've got completeness. Then obviously, humans make a decision that they're going to decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong, and that shalom, that completeness, is broken, right? The rest of the biblical story, the rest of the story of the Torah and the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament is about God inserting Himself into human culture to try and restore shalom again, to try and restore completeness, to try and restore relationship not only with ourselves and God, but also relationships with ourselves and others, right? And also relationship with our relationship with creation. He is trying and He is in the business of restoration. That's His main aim. So, the Torah, the first five books, they start to unpack how God is creating, is calling, and is inviting a new kind of people who are fully able to love God and to love others. Because from where God stands, that's what shalom looks like. If you are perfectly able to love God and love others, completeness, unity, wholeness, health, prosperity, all of those things, shalom. So, what we get is uh, we've got God working Himself out through history. He calls Abraham, and He's called Moses, and now He's brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and He says, people of Israel, you are the ones. You are the guys that are going to help me restore this earth. So, what I want you to do is, if you do have a Bible or if you've got an app or something, turn to Exodus chapter 19, uh, because this is like, this is the critical moment in the story of the Torah. These first five books, this is the moment where stuff gets real. And if we can understand this, then it's going to help all of the law make so much more sense. So, uh, starting in verse 3, chapter 19, verse 3. It's not going to be on the screen because I was like, let's get into the Bible and see what happens. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. And if you're not familiar with the story up to this point, it's okay. Moses is about to recap it for all the people of Israel who were also a little foggy on the details. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. Okay. My kingdom of priests, my holy nation. Basically, what God is saying at this point is, you are my chosen people, but what is it going to look like for you guys to represent me as a kingdom of priests here in this world. Now, in the ancient world, uh, people had a very clear idea about what priests did and what role they served. A priest was somebody that stood in the gap between you and the far-off God slash gods. They were a human that you could come to and experience something of the character or the nature of 
the god slash gods. So in the ancient world, there was a fair idea of what a priest looked like and what they did. What God was asking the people of Israel to do at this point in time was to enter in basically like a marriage ceremony in which God says, I will be your God, you will be my people, and this is what it's going to look like. And it's pretty specific. So, after he says those things, Israel's like, okay, yeah, sounds good, let's do it. And what follows in the rest of uh, chapter 19, chapter 20, is then the Ten Commandments. That's where it starts, right? Okay, so the Ten Commandments get given by God, and they are seen as a covenant for the future of Israel. It's a bit like a, like a constitution for a nation, right? So there is this element of, you people are going to be my priests, you're going to represent me in this world, but also you are now a nation, and as a nation, you guys need some uh, rules that you're going to govern yourselves by. I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, here's what it's going to look like. So, what follows? Oh my gosh, what follows are a lot of details, like lots of details. And um, in, in sort of when we look back on it now, scholars tend to kind of break these uh, sets of rules down. So, there are a lot of rules given in the book of Exodus, more given in the book of Leviticus, and a few more in Numbers and in Deuteronomy, they're all kind of recapped. But, there's also a lot of story intertwined within them. Um, and these laws are kind of broken down into, uh, when we look back on them anyway, not at the time, but when we look back on them, we kind of break them down into three kind of categories. We've got moral laws, we've got ceremonial laws, and we have civil laws. I'm going to come back to what they might look like and what they mean for us in just a little bit. But there is story intertwined with all of these laws. So, for example, Ten Commandments. God gives the Ten Commandments. Some of us, maybe most of us, will have heard the Ten Commandments at some point in our life. One of those commandments is, uh, love God, you shall, you shall not have any other gods but me. Don't make any images of gods. And then, as the story unfolds, right after that, what do the Israelites do? They, they, they make an image of a god, they worship that image, they've just broken the commandments that they were just given. And the cycle repeats itself over and over and over. And we tend to look at the story of the Israelites as they're given all these specific instructions and then constantly breaking them, like, almost immediately afterwards. We see that and we kind of go, come on, guys, like, God's telling you exactly what to do here. Can't you just do it? I know I've definitely seen it that way, but if I'm honest with myself, and if we're all honest with ourselves, that's, that's humanity. That's humanity. That's what we're all like. We can all see ourselves in that role right there with God saying, here's how you're meant to live your life. And we're going, thanks, but we're still the ones choosing what we think is right and wrong. We're still going to gravitate towards the things that please ourselves over what pleases God. That's just kind of how we are. It's almost as if in the story of the Torah, of the law, it's almost as if that collection is saying no matter how many laws get brought in, the Israelites just aren't capable of making it. They aren't capable of fully loving God, 
loving others, being his representatives in the world. Time and time again they fail, just like us, to be real. So, I guess coming back to the original question that I asked just a moment ago, what story does the law tell us? Well, it tells us for the people of Israel in their time and in their culture, what does it look like to love God and to love others? What would it look like for a group of people to show the world what God is like? But ultimately, what this story tells us, at least in those first five books of the Bible, is that, uh, is that it's impossible, which uh, does seem a little bit hopeless. I'm going to park that hopeless thought there. We'll hopefully come back to it. So, which ones apply to us? I kind of briefly touched on three different types of laws, like moral, ceremonial, civil, right? So, let's just really briefly unpack those. Moral laws. Starts out with like 10 commandments, right? Most people see the 10 commandments as a uh, pretty good backbone for what Judeo-Christian values and hence a lot of Western countries base their, their system of justice on, right and wrong, right? So, uh, the moral laws, these are addressing like human behavior that is meant to reflect the character of God. Let me explain it like this. If you're reading through the Old Testament law and you come across an instruction, a good question to ask yourself, and this isn't foolproof, it doesn't work like 100% of the time, but a really good question to ask yourself around this whole thing of does it apply to me, does it not, is what is this law showing? For example, a law like uh, you shall have no other gods before me, that law is coming from God's character, right? It's coming from a, who he is. The Lord is one, you don't have any other gods before me. Doesn't matter where you are in time, doesn't matter where you are in history, that fact about God's character, that doesn't change. And therefore, if we are able to apply that to ourselves, it shouldn't change for us now either. Now, I guess we can jump down a really deep diving kind of rabbit hole of nitpicking here. And honestly, the early church did a lot of nitpicking as well. Uh, and in some cases, you know, Christianity today is still figuring out of these moral laws about what God said is right and wrong, what of it still applies today? So the question, uh, or I guess the framework that I'm encouraging you when you're looking through the Old Testament law is going, okay, so if God says, uh, don't have any other gods before me, there is no way he would be able to renege on that or, or say that mm, you don't really need to follow that anymore without denying who he is. Does that make sense? Because at that point, or the same could be said for uh, do not murder. And if you're starting to pick up a theme or if you're familiar with how Jesus taught, this is how he taught it. Do not murder, right? That's something that's in the Ten Commandments. It's part of who God's character is. So then it would be against his character for them to say, oh, that law doesn't apply to you now. It's against his character. Okay, so that's talking about divine character. Now let's talk about ceremonial laws and civil laws. Okay, ceremonial laws. These are probably what we could easily categorize as the weird ones 
or the ones that don't seem to make too much sense to us in our day and time today. And it's really tempting to just throw them all and, uh, and press skip every time you come to a passage that talks about ceremonial law. Again, the challenge here, though, is we've got to see it as a story, right? Ceremonial law was there to make the Israelites stand out from the nations that surrounded them. You've got to remember the nation of Israel is, you know, this is thousands of years ago in ancient tribal societies. They had some really uh, ingrained ideas about who God, gods were at this particular point in time. And all of these ceremonial laws that come up of like how to prepare sacrifices, uh, what was good to eat and what not to eat, uh, all of these kinds of things are all there to help the nation of Israel stand out among the tribal ancient nations that they were around to say we are meant to represent who God is like. And also, um, there, was this, uh, there was this very common ancient perception on uh, how close you could get to God. So far, throughout these first five books of the Bible, we see time and time again of God drawing near to humans. That is something that no other God or culture was, was about at that point in time. The thought that a human being could be near to God at all was groundbreaking and revolutionary and just unheard of. So when you read the book of Leviticus, and it's talking about you've got to do this and you've got to do that to the animal's entrails, and then you've got to, you know, blood here and stuff there, and there is so much uh, detail in that because these people needed specific instructions to know that they were doing it right, to know that they could approach God's throne, that they could approach God and not just be taken out, because that was the ancient perception of God slash gods at the time. You couldn't go near God. You were at the mercy of the gods. They were somewhere up there just doing their thing, and they would make the rains come. They'd make the crops grow if, uh, if they felt like it, and if they didn't, you were kind of screwed. But here in Leviticus, the people of Israel are invited to draw near to God, and they're given specific instructions about how this is going to look. So basically, if you were in ancient Israel, you would have 100% appreciated all of the details that are unpacked in Leviticus and in Exodus and in Numbers and Deuteronomy because you'd want to know that you were doing it right. I'll leave it there for now. Civil law. Civil law is basically kind of the laws and frameworks that we would, we would still have today or any, any nation would have today. There is so much in the Torah that addresses the, the civil needs, the justice, the righteousness of any functioning country. And again, the laws that, that God gave to Moses and to give to the people of Israel, some of these were just off the charts revolutionary in terms of um, social justice issues, treatment of slaves, treatment of women, treat, uh, treatment of refugees, like so many of these civil laws that were given to the people of Israel were crazy in their time, in a time where human life was fragile, where women were exploited all the time, where, um, where markets were manipulated and people were cheated. There was so much specificity that God gave 
to the people of Israel to say, as you are working your lives out, loving God, loving others, you're going to need some details here to try and work this out as you, you know, try and live with a couple of hundred thousand other people and make it work as a society. Now, these ceremonial and civil laws, in my head and according to like reading and stuff that I've been doing, and again, I encourage you to dig into this if this is something you're interested in, but they serve a purpose. You know how I said with the moral laws, they reveal like God's character, his divine character. Ceremonial and civil laws kind of help reveal God's divine purpose with the people of Israel. So again, if you're coming to a particular passage in the Torah, in the law, in the Old Testament, and you find yourself going, "Eh, does this apply to us today? I don't really know. Ask yourself, was this about God pulling out his divine purpose, working out his divine purpose through the people of Israel? Or is this something that's talking about God's character, you know, who he is? I don't know. Divine character, divine purpose. Those are kind of the two very, very, very broad categories that you can kind of think of when it comes to um, God's law. So I guess I challenge you, you know, next time you pick up the Bible and you do find yourself wandering through the Torah, see which category those things fall under. And it's not a one and done, really neat and clean distinction, but I've found it really helpful and I hope, I hope you do too. So um, here's the thing though, in summary, 613 laws that is, that is crazy and it's impossible and the Israelites basically proved that it was impossible because time and time again they would fail. Sometimes they would succeed, most of the time um, they would fail. So um, again, sounds kind of hopeless, I'll get to the hopeful bit. Before we go there, three key things that I'd really uh, love you guys to think about the next time you open the Old Testament law. Uh, first of all, The Old Testament law reveals God's character and his plan for the world. And it reveals our, like, original role as as his partners. But the Old Testament law also demonstrates that Israel's slash our inability to be God's effective partners in the world is a big problem. Humanity is like fundamentally something in our core is just not working. And third, because here comes the hopeful part, it shows us what good news really is because it draws us to Jesus as the one who was actually able to do this, was actually able to live this out, was actually able to represent God on the earth properly, and he invites us in. Okay, so this is where hopefully we're going to make a big pivot to something that is a lot more exciting. So, uh, divine character, divine purpose, the two general categories that I gave for like the Old Testament law, both of those things, divine character, love God, love others, divine purpose, being set apart to help restore the world, Both of those things were perfectly married in the person of Jesus. He was able to to fulfill the divine purpose 
that means that like a lot of the laws that have to do with you know diet and uh, you know circumcision and and other weird things that set the nation of Israel apart for a purpose those things he fulfilled it also means that he fulfills God's character he accurately and perfectly represented what it looked like to love God and love others here in the world and this is what Jesus teaches. I'm going to, I'm going to read from uh, Matthew chapter 5. Um, this is, I'm using a paraphrased version. It's not word for word translated what Jesus said, um, but I find it really helpful for what the point I'm trying to make, so I'm going to use it. Feel free to look it up in your own, um, in your own translations, and the point still comes across. But in the message paraphrase of Matthew chapter 5, it says this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, don't suppose... For a minute that I have come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I'm going to put it all together. Put it all together in a vast panorama. Sounds like shalom to me. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after stars burn out and the earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. Now, this next bit really uh, hit me where I live. Trivialize even the smallest item in God's law and you will only have trivialized yourself. But take it seriously. Show the way for others and you will find honor in the kingdom. Unless you do far better than the Pharisees in the matters of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom. That last line I'm going to jump back to in just a second. So, Jesus was perfectly able to love God, love others. He successfully shows the nations of the world what it would look like to love God, to love others, to even love your enemies to the point where he's nailed on the cross. Like, that's how far he's willing to take this. And then, having fulfilled all of the law, God's divine character, God's divine purpose... He is resurrected. He breaks the cycle of sin, death, brokenness that has been plaguing humanity since they decided to go their own way. All of a sudden, he's the one that's got it right. And that means for us that for the first time, A, we have someone that we can model ourselves on, like an actual human, and B, we have the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit that is going to do the one thing that the law could never do, transform our heart. Actually be God himself dwelling within us and changing us. Jesus was the one who got it right. And he didn't just get it right so that we wouldn't have to anymore. He got it right so that now we would actually be able to love God and love others the way that God originally intended. You know, to the point where God actually invites us all to, to a higher standard now with the law. I mean, you look at the details and the specificities of, of God's divine law that he gave to the people of Israel. Jesus himself is saying, that's, that's just the start of it. Like, if you really want to love God, love others... hating someone, calling them an idiot, that's the same as murdering them. Lusting after someone, that's the same as committing adultery. 
there's actually a higher standard that God, uh, that Jesus invites us into there because he was going to give us the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and actually make us capable of doing these things. All right. So I guess the question where it lands for us, the next time that you bust into the Old Testament law, the law is now written on our hearts. The mandate for us to love God and to love others is higher than it has ever been. The need for us to do this in our world is probably higher than it has ever been. So the question comes for us, as Jesus invites us into his kingdom, where he is working to restore all things, where he's working to restore, he's already restored the relationship with God. He's working to restore that in each of us first, but he's also working to restore relationship with each other, with ourselves, with creation. As he's doing that, are we going to let the person of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit actually transform our hearts? Are we going to let him do that? The invitation is there. Will we let him transform us? Look, I'm going to pray. We're going to watch a video really briefly that basically summarizes where the end of the Old Testament law left us and where Jesus came and met us in that moment. Heavenly Father, I just pray for each of us here tonight. I thank you for uh, the gift of your story, the gift of the biblical story of your word. I pray that as, uh, as we seek to know you more, as we seek to learn more about who you are and how you have revealed yourself in this world, pray that we'd be able to see ourselves in your story and we'd be able to know more of who you have called us to be here in this world today. God, renew our minds, change our hearts, help us to become more like Jesus. Pray that you would challenge us in this way. And it's because of Jesus and everything that he accomplished on the cross that I can pray these things. Amen.